Section 1 of In Times Like These by Nellie McClung. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 1 The War That Never Ends. If at last the sword is sheathed and men exhausted call it peace, old nature wears no olive wreath, the weapons change, war does not cease. The little struggling blades of grass that lift their heads and will not die, the vines that climb where sunbeams pass and fight their way toward the sky, and every soul that God has made who from despair their lives defend and struggling upward through the shade break every bond that will not bend, these are the soldiers unafraid in the great war that has no end. We will begin peaceably by contemplating the world of nature, trees and plants and flowers, common green things against which there is no law, for surely there is no corruption in carrots, no tricks in turnips, no mixed motive in marigolds. To look abroad upon a peaceful field drowsing in the sunshine, lazily touched by a wandering breeze, no one would suspect that any struggle was going on in the tiny hearts of the flowers and grasses. The lilies of the field have long ago been said to toil not, neither spin, and the inference has been that they, in common with all other flowers and plants, lead a lady's life, untroubled by any thought of ambition or activity. The whole world of nature seems to present a perfect picture of obedience and peaceful meditation. But for all their quiet, innocent ways, every plant has one ambition, and will attain it by any means. Plants have one ambition, and therein they have the advantage of us, who sometimes have too many, and sometimes none at all. Their ambition is to grow, to spread, to travel, to get away from home. Home is their enemy, for if a plant falls at its mother's knee, it is doomed to death, or a miserable, stunted life. Every seed has its own little plan of escape. Some of them are pitiful enough and stamped with failure, like the tiny screw of the lucerne, which might be of some use if the seed were started on its flight from a considerable elevation, but as it is, it has hardly turned over before it hits the ground. But the next seed tries the same plan, always hoping for a happier result. With better success, the maple seed uses its little spreading wings to conquer space, and if the wind does its part, the plan succeeds and that the wind generally can be depended on to blow is shown by the wide dissemination of maple trees. More subtle still are the little tricks that seeds have of getting animals and people to give them a lift on their way. Many a bird has picked a bright red berry from a bush, with a feeling of gratitude, no doubt, that his temporal needs are thus graciously supplied. He swallows the sweet husk, and incidentally the seed, paying no attention to the latter, and flies on his way. The seed remains unchanged and undigested, and is thus carried far from home, and gets its chance. 
So, too, many seeds are provided with burrs and spikes, which stick in sheep's wool, dog's hair, or the clothing of people, and so travel abroad to the far country, the land of growth, the land of promise. There is something pathetically human in the struggle plants make to reach the light. Tiny rootlets have been known to pierce rocks in their stern determination to reach the light that their soul craves. They refuse to be resigned to darkness and despair. Who has not marveled at the intelligence shown by the canary vine, the wild cucumber plant, or the morning glory, in the way their tendrils reach out and find the rusty nail or sliver on the fence? anything on which they can rise into the higher air, even as you and I reach out the trembling tendrils of our souls for something solid to rest upon. There is no resignation in nature, no quiet folding of the hands, no hypocritical saying, Thy will be done, and giving in without a struggle. Countless millions of seeds and plants are doomed each year to death and failure, but all honor to them. They put up a fight to the very end. Resignation is a cheap and indolent human virtue, which has served as an excuse for much spiritual slothfulness. It is still highly revered and recommended. It is so much easier sometimes to sit down and be resigned than to rise up and be indignant. Years ago people broke every law of sanitation and when plagues came they were resigned and piously looked heavenward and blamed God for the whole thing. Thy will be done, they said, and now we know it was not God's will at all. It is never God's will that any should perish. People were resigned when they should have been cleaning up. Thy will be done should ever be the prayer of our hearts, but it does not let us out of any responsibility. It is not a weak acceptance of misfortune, or sickness, or injustice, or wrong, for these things are not God's will. Thy will be done is a call to fight, to fight for better conditions, for moral and physical health, for sweeter manners, cleaner laws, and a fair chance for everyone, even women. The man or woman who tries to serve their generation need not cry out, as did the hymn-writer of the last century, against the danger of being carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease, for we know that flowery beds of ease have never been a mode of locomotion to the skies. Flowery beds of ease lead in an entirely opposite direction, which has had the effect of discouraging celestial emigration for humanity is very partial to the easy way of traveling. People like not only to travel the easy way, but to think along the beaten path, which is so safe and comfortable, where the thoughts have been worked over so often that the very words are ready-made and come easily. There is a good deal of the cat in the human family. We like comfort and ease, a warm cushion by a cozy fire, and then sweet sleep, and don't disturb me. Disturbers are never popular. Nobody ever really loved an alarm clock in action. 
no matter how grateful they may have been afterwards for its kind services. It was the people who did not like to be disturbed who crucified Christ. The worst fault they had to find with him was that he annoyed them. He rebuked the carnal mind. He aroused the cat spirit. And so they crucified him and went back to sleep. Even yet new ideas blow across some souls like a cold draft, and they naturally get up and shut the door. They have even been known to slam it. The sin of the world has ever been indifference and slothfulness, more than real active wickedness. Life, the real abundant life of one who has a vision of what a human soul may aspire to be, becomes a great struggle against conditions. Life is warfare, not one set of human beings warring upon other human beings. That is murder, no matter by what euphonious name it may be called. But war waged against ignorance, selfishness, darkness, prejudice, and cruelty, beginning always with the roots of evil which we find in our own hearts. What a glorious thing it would be if nations would organize and train for this warfare, whose end is life and peace and joy everlasting, as they now train and organize for the wholesale murder and burning and pillaging, whose mark of victory is the blackened trail of smoking piles of ruins, dead and maimed human beings, interrupted trade, and paralyzed industries. Once a man paid for his passage across the ocean in one of the great Atlantic liners. He brought his provisions with him to save expenses, but as the days went on he grew tired of cheese, and his biscuits began to taste mousy, and the savory odors of the kitchen and dining-room were more than he could resist. There was only one day more, but he grew so ravenously hungry he felt he must have one good meal if it took his last cent. He made his way to the dining-room, and asked the man at the desk the price of a meal. In answer to his inquiry the man asked to see his ticket. "'It will not cost you anything,' he said. "'Your ticket includes meals.' "'That's the way it is in life. We have been traveling below our privileges. There is enough for everyone, if we could get at it. There is food and raiment, a chance to live and love and labor for everyone. These things are included in our ticket. Only some of us have not known it, and some others have reached out and taken more than their share, and try to excuse their hoggishness by declaring that God did not intend all to travel on the same terms. But you and I know God better than that. To bring this about, the even chance for everyone, is the plain and simple meaning of life. This is the war that never ends. It has been waged all down the centuries by brave men and women whose hearts God has touched. It is a quiet war with no blare of trumpets to keep the soldiers on the job, no flourish of flags or clinking of swords to stimulate flagging courage. It may not be as romantic a warfare, from the standpoint of our medieval ideas of romance, as the old way of sharpening up a battle-axe, 
and spreading our enemy to the evening breeze. But the reward of victory is not seeing our brother man dead at our feet, but rather seeing him alive and well, working by our side. To this end, let us declare war on all meanness, snobbishness, petty or great jealousies, all forms of injustice, all forms of special privilege, all selfishness and all greed. Let us drop bombs on our prejudices. Let us send submarines to blow up all our poor little petty vanities, subterfuges, and conceits, with which we have endeavored to veil the face of truth. Let us make a frontal attack on ignorance, laziness, doubt, despondence, despair, and unbelief. The banner over us is love, and our watchword, a fair deal. End of section one.